you have a Bible with you, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, which will be the text that we're in this evening. One of the basic questions, actually the most basic question for us as human beings, is the question, who am I? Who am I? It's the question of identity, the question of when I look in the mirror and I see my, who am I? This is a question that every single one of us has to answer at one level or another. We have to have a working definition to that, or working answer to that question, really in order to face anything in our life uh, any day of the week. And uh, this struggle of this question of who am I is a question that I'm sure is not unique to 21st century human beings who live in the West, in the United States. I'm confident that this is a question that human beings have wrestled with and struggled with for the entirety of the history of humankind. Who am I? At the same time, while this struggle has been something that we've experienced as a race from the beginning, there are some realities to the modern world that make this question even more pressing, perhaps, and more um, trying for us to answer than perhaps had gone on in previous centuries. In a global, global society like we live in, the demise of social uh, or of um, social hierarchies or norms, you know, inherited identities, well, my father did this or my mother did this and so on and so forth, and this is who I am. Those things have really been broken down. Um, the stable places of life that were known in, in cultures where there was far less movement and probably still are in cultures today where there's far more rootedness and stability uh, are no longer available to us as human beings, at least in the modern world and the global world that we know. Here's a, a, a quote from a professor in South Africa about this who says, identity formation has become a product of self-construction, a product of self-construction open to free choice, a task, an obligation which the individual has no choice but to fulfill to the best of his or her ability. Instead of something that's inherited, it's something that we are required to construct and to choose. And I would venture to say and propose to you that when we have chosen the answer to that question, we know that it's only as secure as our grasp upon what we've chosen. We also know that we can reinvent that choice at any point in our lives. Another popular psychologist says this, our identity should be seen as an ongoing process Rather than, as, rather than a static snapshot, we should embrace a flowing sense of self whereby we are perpetually reframing, reorganizing, rethinking, and reconsidering ourselves. Now, while I'm sure there's some truth to that, it also sounds quite exhausting, doesn't it? Uh, this constant process of having to answer the question of who am I? Who am I? And the fact that we have to choose and create something in answer to that question in the modern world. Well, obviously, the gospel that we proclaim in this church at Church of the Cross, the gospel of Jesus Christ, actually speaks to this question, who am I, very basically and very deeply, and we'll get into that in a moment. Tonight, we're going to start a new series for several weeks in the book of 1 Corinthians, and I want to give you some orientation to this book, and then we'll pick up that question about identity again in just a moment. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul has written to Corinth in the first century, probably around 54, 55 A.D., Um, This was about four to five years after he had founded the church in Corinth, had gone there, had proclaimed the gospel for the first time. This is recorded in Acts 18, and it says that Paul spent about 18 months in the city of Corinth, 
teaching and preaching about the gospel, about Jesus, and then he left to go on and to plant additional works and churches in the ancient world. Corinth was uh, an interesting place. It was a seaport um, that was sandwiched between two ports. It was at the center of a, a trade route between the Western world and Italy and the Eastern world in Asia Minor. And it was centered right there so that a lot of commerce came through Corinth. It was a happening, bustling place. Um, Ancient Corinth was destroyed in 146 BC by Rome, and it was leveled in large part. But then in 44 BC, so about 100 years before Paul's writing this letter, um, Julius Caesar reestablished Corinth as a Roman colony. And so a couple things about Corinth. One is that it was filled with people who were opportunists in many ways. Uh, Because as a colony of Rome in 44, the people who came to colonize, many of them were were Roman freedmen who had been formerly been slaves, but now found in this new colony a place where there could be upward mobility, um, unlike many places that they might find themselves. In fact, in Corinth, um, freedmen, those former slaves, could hold positions of authority in the city that weren't available in many other Roman colonies and cities. So one thing about Corinth, it was a place of upward social mobility where you could grasp for higher rings of economic and social status. It was also a city with numerous pagan sites, as were most cities in the ancient world, obviously, Um, so perhaps nothing too distinctive. But it's important that we note that those who were receiving this letter from Paul were walking around in a city where there were pagan temples all over the place and statues of pagan gods, particularly Athena statue in the central marketplace. But they were reminded every day as they walked around of the false gods, the gods that they had formerly worshipped. And then um, ancient Corinth, actually before it was uh, destroyed in 146 BC, had a a reputation for being a very sexually immoral city. Now, most scholars would say that at the time Paul was writing, the uh, sexual morals of Corinth were no better or no worse than probably the rest of the seaports in the ancient world. But this was something that was at least in the backdrop, um, as some ancient historians note, that existed in Corinth. So that's a few things about the city into which Paul is writing this letter to this community to work to note. Now, about the community that Paul's writing to for just a moment, the composition of that community was mostly, we think, Gentiles. That is, mostly people who didn't know the God of Israel. But when Paul came to Corinth and proclaimed the gospel about Jesus as the world's true Lord, they heard something in that proclamation Something was born in them, we call that faith, and they responded to this gospel and began to believe. So this was largely a Gentile community with mixed socioeconomic status. Sometimes Corinth gets a reputation for being only a community of the poor because of a passage we'll look at in a few weeks. But actually, there was a diversity of social status. We can, we can discern that from looking at the rest of the book, particularly chapter 11, where they're dealing with issues of communion and there are some of higher social status who are offending those of lower social status. So it was a community of mixed socioeconomic status and some scholars have put the, the, the number, nobody really knows, but it's maybe helpful for you to think about this as we think about this letter, the number in Corinth of the church around maybe 150 to 200. So it's not a gigantic community, it's a small community, um, most likely meeting in homes. So why does Paul write this letter to this ancient Christian community? Two reasons. One um, is that the woman who bears the name of my first child, or I should probably say it the other way around, um, Chloe, who, was, uh, who um, headed a household, was a woman of great means, had sent a report to the apostle, the beloved apostle, that there were problems in the Christian community in Corinth. Things were not well. 
She reported about divisions, which we'll look at next week, and many other issues going on, sexual immorality, other things going on in the community that were of deep concern to her and to those in her household. So they wrote, they sent an envoy, actually, to Paul to bring him this news. And secondly, the community of Corinth, we don't know exactly how this took place or who the spokespeople were for this, but they wrote a letter to Paul asking Paul some questions about, should we be able to eat meat sacrificed to idols in the temple? Um, What about marriage? What about having sex in marriage? Is that something we should do? These kinds of questions come up in the book of Corinthians, in this letter. So those are the two things that are informing Paul as he writes this letter to the church in Corinth. There's a lot of stuff going on in the community, and um, unfortunately for Corinth, this private correspondence between Paul and this church was now canonized, and now we read about the junk that went on in their community um, for the rest of time. God's chosen to use this letter to communicate his truth and to form Christ in his people, not just for Corinth in, in 55 AD, but for all of us who share the identity in Christ that the people in Corinth shared. So there's a lot going on in Corinth. And one of the ways, and just to say about how we approach the scriptures, we approach them in this church as those things that have been God-breathed, that this is the word of God, not just through Paul to Corinth, but through Paul to the church. But we don't just ignore the context into which Paul's writing. We listen in. We, we get to know the context. We come and hear the conversation. And as we do so, then we learn what it means and what it says and what it speaks to a community like ours at Church of the Cross today. But that's the process that we do, that we want to come to this book as, as though it speaks directly to us. But we're listening in on a private conversation that took place 2,000 years ago to get that word for us today. So Paul has a lot of work to do in this letter. He has a lot of work to do, but he starts with this question of identity. He starts with this question that is the most basic question for you and for me. I would venture to say that much like the church in Corinth, uh, most of us could agree that the church, even Church of the Cross, certainly the church of Boston, and perhaps for sure the church around the globe, is full of issues and full of struggles, and full of problems. That it's far from the ideal of what it means to be followers of Jesus. But instead of focusing on all of that, Paul says, no, I'm going to start in this place and talk about the identity that is yours by virtue of being in Christ. And Paul knows that in dealing with this most basic question first, he's setting himself up very well to address the issues of life and living that he has to deal with in writing this epistle, this letter to the church that he loves. So he starts there in the issues of identity. And what he does is he roots this community deeply from the very beginning into this bigger story of God and Christ and what's going on in the world around them. A world that is not disconnected, a world that is not meaningless, but a world that is unified under the one God who made heaven and earth who sent his son Jesus into the world to live and to die for us. He says in verse 2, he says, first he identifies himself as a servant of this Christ Jesus. And then he says in verse 2, to the church of God, the ecclesia, the assembly of God. That is, you in Corinth, you are owned by someone. You belong to someone. You're not on your own. You don't make things up. You don't go out and grasp an identity for yourself because of whatever it is that you feel like. But you are belonging to the God who made everything. He calls them the church of God. And then he says that they have been sanctified. 
in Christ Jesus. To the church of God, those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now, to be sanctified, we kind of think of that as a word that means, well, then therefore they were perfectly holy. But we obviously know that that's not what Paul means because we know that what's going on in Corinth, there's a lot of mess going on. There's a lot of sin running around in the church. But to be sanctified is, is actually to be set apart for a special purpose in the service of God. So what Paul's saying to them is he's saying part of your identity as those who are of God is that you've been set apart for a special purpose in God's service. Now there's a great history to this, which Paul as a Jew would have known very well, reading in the book of Leviticus or of Exodus even, of the things that had been set apart to be vessels used in the tabernacle to the worship of the Almighty God. These things were, were set apart for a, for a special use. Priests were set apart in the Old Testament for a special use for the work of God, to enable the worship of God to go on in the world. And what Paul's saying to the church is he's saying, you know, all your mess aside, you guys belong to God and you've been set apart for a spe- special purpose, for God's special purpose, to be used by him in the city of Corinth around you that's teeming with idolatry and sin of all kinds. You've been set apart for this purpose, to be used by God. Called to be holy. A similar kind of phrase there. Called to be set apart, to be saints to be used. You know, we read from Isaiah 6 tonight, this great passage Patrick read for us, of God on his throne and the seraphim before him shouting out, holy, holy, holy. This holy God has set apart people like you and like me for a holy service in the world around us. To think about the fact that we've been called to be holy is an a high, an incredibly high calling that forms and shapes our life and our purpose in who God is. And then he says in verse 2, he says also, called to be saints together with those who are in every place, who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both theirs and ours. You know, part of what Paul's saying to Corinth, Corinth had a problem with pride. They had a problem with thinking they were spiritual hotshots. And part of what Paul's saying by saying, look, you have this special calling, but it's a calling that's united with all of those around the world who call upon Jesus Christ as Lord, who say that Jesus is King. You're not exactly hot stuff in the first, uh, you know, in first place, but you have a calling that's to be, you know, um, to see yourself as part of this fuller body. Just like us, just like here at Church of the Cross, we have the same calling to be called to be set apart, sanctified for this work of God in Christ. But we're no different than the church that meets here in the afternoon, the Chinese church, or Ruggles Baptist that meets here in the morning, or the churches that meet in Brighton in the morning or in the evening, or in Back Bay or in Dorchester or on the North Shore. We stand together with all of those as recipients of this great identity that God has given us as his saints in Christ Jesus. So God, this is a community that God has called into being that is, originates in God and that responds to that call by this phrase to call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what marks anyone who says, I'm in the church, I'm part of the church. What marks, the badge that marks those of us who have an identity in Christ is simply this, that we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. We call upon Jesus as Lord. We say in our lives, Jesus, you are the Lord, you are the King. And notice, this is not just saying, you know, I believe that once upon a time, 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on a cross 
and he was raised from the dead. This is actually saying, Jesus, you are Lord today, now. It's a present tense call. Paul says all those who call upon, present tense, are Lord Jesus. We call upon him as Lord. And all of those who call upon him form together, verse 9, they're called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. They're called into this worldwide fellowship. The word koinonia means a partnership, a deep sharing and relationship with Jesus the Lord, but also with one another in a way that's sacrificial, in a way that's defined by the Holy Spirit in other parts of the biblical texts. So we have this great identity all centered around the new king that God has sent into the world, Jesus. Jesus is mentioned eight times by name in these nine verses. This is what's flowing out of Paul as he takes up his pen to write to this troubled church. Remember that your identity is shaped and grounded and found in this Lord, this King, this Jesus. Well, let me just say here for a moment of, of bringing this again to the present tense. There's a lot that goes on in your life and a lot that goes on in my life. There's a lot that we are tempted to draw our identity from, to define ourselves from, to answer this question, who am I, based upon the things that are going on in our world, in our lives today. But what Paul's saying here to the church in Corinth, which has a lot of issues that they could focus on, is that, look, your issues don't define you. Your failures don't define you. Your shortcomings don't define you. Your uh, unmet expectations don't define you. Your uncertain future doesn't define you. Your ailments don't define you. The things that have been done to you, that were unjustly done to you, don't define you. There is only one thing that defines you, says Paul, to the church in Corinth and the Spirit to us today. And that is the fact that God has grabbed you and called you and made you his own in, his, in the person of his son Jesus. And he's given you this gift of faith that calls out to his son Jesus as Lord. And that defines you, that shapes you, that grounds you more than anything else. Who are we? Who am I? At the core, we are Jesus' people. We are people who have been found, who have been given life in the Messiah. People who have been drawn up, as we've talked about in the Weeks on Joy, into this larger story of this God who's made the world and is making all things new through this person, Jesus, and his death and resurrection. That's who you are. Not anything else. That defines you. That shapes you. And part of that definition of being Jesus' people means that you are fundamentally blessed. And this is where Paul goes next in his thanksgiving. This is common in his letters. He greets them and then he thanks God for them. I give thanks to my God, verse 4, always because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. And what Paul says is he says, you're people who are blessed deeply beyond anything that you know, and you're blessed in the past, in the present, and in the future. In the past, verse 4, the grace of God that was given you in Christ. You've been given grace which is a whole, it's a power word in the Bible, grace is. It opens the door to all kinds of, of, uh, of resonances and realities that God has poured out his unmerited favor upon you, these people in Corinth. You who used to worship idols, who used to live in, in immorality of all kinds. God has set his affections and his grace upon you. In verse 4, he's given you this grace. And then that's the past. In the present, this grace has enriched you, he says. You are enriched in him, in the present, in all speech and all knowledge, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift. 
You've been enriched. This grace has not only affected you in the past, but it's enriching you in the moment today that you might continue to grow and be established in this identity. He says, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, this testimony of God's work in the gospel being confirmed, established, and deepened and rooted in you and in your heart. That's why we gather here week after week is to have this testimony rooted and deepened in us. You've been enriched, he says. And also blessed in the future, he says in verse 7, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. The story that began in the coming of Jesus and his death and resurrection is heading for a glorious and wonderful conclusion. When Jesus, the true king, will not just be declared as king by faith by his people, like you and me in the present day, like those in Corinth, in a world of idols, declaring, no, Jesus is king. But we're waiting for the day when that king is made manifest to all the world, the glorious appearing of our Lord Jesus, the revealing of our Lord Jesus, the revelation of Jesus as the world's true king, Paul says. And you're waiting for that day, and God in Christ is able to sustain you to give you the grace to make... I don't know what you're facing in your life right now. I don't know what you're facing, what's difficult, what's challenging, what's struggling for you. What are the doubts that plague you, perhaps, in your heart? Or maybe the actions that are deeply disturbing to you? But here's Paul saying with a deep sense of gratitude in God, that God will sustain you to the end. Guiltless. Able to stand. That he's faithful. That he's faithful. One of the things that I'd like to say is, is there's a lot in the church that's not right. Paul could have started this epistle in a lot of different ways, couldn't he? I mean, he could have just torn right into them. You know, one of you is sleeping with your mother-in-law. That's not exactly what I call following Jesus. He could have just jumped right in there. But you know what? He stops and he says, no, I'm going to say, I'm going to remind you, Corinth, of who you are. That you're defined by nothing else than the grace of God in Christ. This is what gives you strength. This is what gives you um, a deep rootedness. As you go out of your homes every day and as you walk by the pagan temples and as you see the the cult prostitutes, as you see people in the marketplace cheating one another and, and pursuing the gods of money, as you look at all these things, this is a young community. They're not even five years old. They didn't have a history in the church. He says, this is who you are. This is the root, the ground, the foundation on which everything else stands. And then he says, you know what? Even though you're all screwed up and you're all messed up, I'm going to give thanks for everything that God's doing in you. Can you do that about the church? You know, can you give thanks for God's work in the church today, despite all of its messes and all of its problems? That's what Paul is doing. He's saying, you know, this is what we have. And I praise God for it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together said this, If we do not give thanks daily for the Christian fellowship in which we have been placed, even where there is no great experience, no discoverable riches, but much weakness, small faith, and difficulty. Sound like the church you want to be a part of? If on the contrary, we only keep complaining to God that everything is so paltry and petty, so far from what we expected, then we hinder God from letting our fellowship grow according to the measure and riches which are there for us all in Jesus Christ. Paul knew in spite of the issues that they were facing that God was present 
among them. That they belonged to the Lord Jesus as king. That they therefore had an identity that was solid and stable and secure, which would form the launching pad for everything that he has to say to them with a pastoral and loving heart. That defines us as well. Who are you? You're a follower of Jesus. You're blessed. God's grace is at work in your life in the past, in the present, and in the future. He will be faithful. Whatever's going on in your life, he will be faithful. Amen.